Today's scripture is from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We are just the sport of the grim and unscrutable president of the universe. We are the playthings of fate and chance, says so a current writer. That is a common view of life, but I think that we would agree that it's a terribly distasteful one. And I don't know who the president of the universe is, according to the person who wrote that, but it's not the God I serve. I'm glad I don't have to live under that dark cloud. I'm sure that you feel the same way. Thinking that God juggles my life without caring what kind of effect that it will have on me. Or even worse yet, to believe that there is no God and that we're just here because of chance. And that we're at the mercy of grim fate. With a very different view of life from that. And it's the one that David just read about from Romans 8 verse 28. I hope you'll keep your place in that passage this morning. Because it's a view that claims that we are in the hands of a wise and a kind and a benevolent God who loves us. And that he arranges and he rules the events of our life so that finally all things do work together for good. If you will, listen to our text one more time. Paul said, and we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That simply has to be life's one of, most, one of life's most fantastic promises. I can't think of any other that supersedes it. There's another translation of that verse from Philip's translation that, that goes like this. Moreover, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. You'd have to have help to misunderstand that. And so there it is. Surely no words in the Bible are more welcome than those There's no claim that we can find in Holy Scripture that covers more territory. And we often turn to those words for strength and we quote them. And maybe it's not because we completely believe them, but it's because we certainly want to believe them. So to really, I think, believe this promise, we have to see life from God's view. You know, even clouds look different from the Godward side than they do from the earthward side, don't they? If you've ever flown above the clouds then you've witnessed a scene of indescribable beauty. From the earthward side, the clouds may be like today. They look dark and and foreboding. But from the Godward side, they glistened with a radiant beauty. People look at this passage and they view this wonderful promise with widely different feelings. Some longingly question, can this promise possibly be true? Some cynically retort, "I I know that it's not true. Because the experiences of life are against it. Some respond, I really wish that I could believe this promise. And then there are some, after experiencing the difficulties and the bitterness of life's blows, are able to say with Paul, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this promise is true. If you will, let's walk through this passage this morning and notice the words of the text. The first two words that I want us to pay particular attention to are the words, I know. And you'll notice that those are favorite words of Paul. This is not the first time 
that Paul has affirmed something with such a high degree of positivity. Let me give you three quick examples of that. In Philippians 1 and verse 19, in opening that letter to the Philippian Christians, speaking of his trial and imprisonment, he said, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, he opens that chapter by pointing to the future. And he said there, we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, talking of course about the physical body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. One more example is 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. One day Paul said, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed into him against that day. And here Paul claims we know that all things work together for good. You know, it's refreshing to hear such a positive statement, isn't it? We hear a lot of doubt and a lot of speculation in the society in which we live. In our day, most people aren't certain of anything except that nothing is certain. So we conjecture and we guess, we surmise and we suppose and we imagine and we speculate. But it is only infrequently that we do dare say this one thing I know with certainty. And Paul was writing this passage with certainty born of inspiration. But how could Paul be so sure? Had logic or demonstration proven this to be true to him? Could he put this quality in a test tube and be able to determine through experimentation that we know that this always turns out right? I think the very nature of the promise required seeing how things turned out in the ultimate. Because after all, Paul is talking about or at least implying the future, knowing that things will turn out for our good. So his conviction, we have to say, was one that was born of faith, one that was born in confidence in what God is promising. In no other way could that kind of dogmatic certainty come. You know, there's some things that we just have to accept by faith, even though what appears fact is against it. I know that's true in your life. It's certainly true in mine. There are all kinds of spiritual realities that we have to accept by faith because we've not seen those with our physical eye. There's a vast difference in being in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father and being in the hands of grim fate or chance. What about the varied circumstances of life? When I'm glad or when I'm sad? When I'm successful or when I'm defeated? When I'm weak or when I'm strong? Is it just a matter of coincidence? Does none of those things fit into a pattern for good? Is it, as once a commentator has speculated, a malformed piece of a puzzle? but it has no place within the framework of the overall picture. Or does, as Paul is stating, God have the power to manipulate all of these incidents in life for my and for your benefit? This verse, I think, really is the gateway to to a sublime confidence that if we can get to this place in our spiritual maturity and we can be able to say with Paul, I know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, then we are going to be at a wonderful place in our relationship to God. And we will have that peace that Paul talks about in the Philippian letter that passes all understanding. Consider, if you will, for just a moment, though, what the verse does not say. Because I know that I've been in some classes and heard a couple of lectures where I I really think that the passage has been misapplied. I know I've heard that in common conversation. The verse has been misstated. Paul is not describing, by the way, God's way of dealing with people in general. 
He's not talking about general providence in this passage. We have that elsewhere in scripture, but that's not what he's doing here. Here we have his dealings with his own people. And he makes that clear at the end of the verse by saying to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So he's not talking about the general population that populates this planet. Neither is he saying that all things are good even in the lives of his own people. We need to make sure that we're properly interpreting the passage within those God-given parameters. Paul knew that wasn't so. He knew that there were some bad things that happened even in the lives of God's people. Those to whom he was writing this letter knew that it wasn't so. And you and I, 2,000 years later, know that isn't so as well. There are just some things that are definitely not good. And we could begin to make a list like disease and disappointment and heartache and prejudice and war. And we could make that list almost infinitely long. Those things are not good on anyone's accounting book. And Paul isn't saying that everything that happens to a child of God is good. So we need to make sure that we read the passage, interpret it, and then apply it with that in mind. But notice the next phrase, to those who love him. Paul does say that all things work together for good. To those who have responded to God's love, and now they love him in return. Again, think about the wonderful, blessed assurance of that thought. That we can have that that confidence that God is going to providentially take the the minute affairs, the details of our life, the pieces of the puzzle of our life and put those together in a way that in the ultimate, we will be able to look back and say, I'm grateful for God's hand being in this situation or in this pattern of my life. You know, I really think to understand the verse then, you have to start at the end of it. When he talks about the qualifier, again, to those who love God, those who genuinely love God, or promise that all the circumstances of life will eventuate in good. You know, there's an amazing impartiality in God's general providence delivered to all mankind. And that's a difficult lesson to learn. There's some prominent Bible characters that had had a problem with that. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. In Psalm 73, there was a man by the name of Asaph who could not understand why he looked around and saw wicked people prospering. He very bitterly complained down in verse 3. Again, this is Psalm 73. Verse 3, he said, I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I don't think Asaph is by himself. I think that there are men and women before him and after him who have felt the same way. How can God allow these people to be blessed even though they're living in ways that are diametrically opposed to how God wants all people to live? Asaph couldn't understand that. And he never got his thinking straight until he went into the sanctuary of God. That's verse 17 of the same psalm. And from that moment forward, he never begrudged the wicked of their momentary pleasures because the Bible says he perceived their end. The NIV reads like this, then I understood their final destiny. I hope you got that. Asaph said, I finally went into the sanctuary of God. And he basically looked at life from the perspective of eternity, not just in the here and now. Sure, when you look around, you wonder why righteous people are suffering and why wicked people are prospering. But he said, when I beheld the ultimate destiny of their lives, when the ledger book is finally balanced, now Asaph said, I understand. Some people, some people's lives are 
or as the old saying goes, are like rearranging the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. They may look good, but they're still on a sinking ship. And Jesus pointed out that God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall upon the good and the evil, upon both the just and the unjust. That's Matthew 5.45, a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And we, like Asaph, I think, wrestle with that seeming injustice. And we never get things in proper perspective until we align them with eternity. Sickness and sorrow and a lot of things that we have already prayed about this morning on behalf of others who are members of this church. Loss and failure and disappointment. Those stresses invade the lives of good people as well as evil ones. And we know that intuitively. But the Bible certainly reaffirms that on virtually every page. But I want you to know that Paul is telling us in this passage that the results are different. Are you hearing me, church? That bad stuff happens to Christians too. But the results are different. There's the shining ray of hope when we understand what God has in mind for us. The same elements, Jesus speaks to, to that point, I think, when he was describing the rains and the flood and the winds whipping the faithful and the foolish in Matthew chapter 7, I believe, starting with about verse 24. You know the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. That's the parable that we're, we're singing about when we sing that song. But, but, but he's talking about two men who made choices and, and the, ele- the same elements lashed out, but the results were completely different. And Jesus made that clear before he finished the parable. He said, the house of the wise man stood, the house of the foolish man fell. So the principle, I think, is the basis for the axiom that many of us have heard our whole lives. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same circumstances, but a completely different result at the end of one's life. So adversity sometimes hardens us. Sometimes we can allow it to embitter us, but not always. Let me give an example of that. In real life, Bill and Jean Brown is a brother and sister in Christ. They lost their preschool son in a freak accident. Some people suffer that kind of loss and they become bitter. In fact, some people even turn their back on God because they blame him for letting this happen. And they forsake him, but not Bill and Jean. Their faith strengthened everyone that knew them. People would call or come by the house to express their consolation, and they would wind up being encouraged by Bill and Jean more than giving encouragement because that's just the kind of couple they were. It's no doubt that their aching heart and their hurt was deep. But you see, they believe the words of our text. Their view goes past tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. It goes past time into eternity because that's exactly the scope that Paul is taking into account in our text even something as distasteful as discipline can bring good Todd was talking about Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 and we got into chapter 12 this morning and verse 5 talks about that kind of discipline listen to verse 11 Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant well amen to that I can, be, I can remember being on the wrong end of the disciplinary belt when I was growing up. And so what he's writing there certainly resonates. But he goes on to say, later, it, it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to all those who've been trained by it. I, I tell you what, of all the words that comprise that particular verse, the one that I like the most is the word later. 
Because that certainly brings it back to reality, doesn't it? There's nothing pleasant about present problems. But later, the reason and the reward appear. God's later will make the reason for the problem clear. You know, we even sing, sing a song from time to time that, that has those, those thoughts in mind. We'll understand it better by and by. And then the little three-letter word all in this verse, I think, can give us some trouble. The verse says all things work together for good. Now, if it had said a few things or maybe even some things, then we might reluctantly agree. But it says all things. And folks, that's just, that could put a strain on our faith, can it? We believe in God. We believe in his providence. Or do we? The real test of faith comes when we meet the difficult times, when we meet the, the obstacles in the mountains in our lives. It's, it's important that I, I think that these words were spoken by a man who knew the kind of discouragement and pain and sorrow that we're talking about this morning. Paul was no fair-weather fair soldier. He was a, a seasoned veteran warrior. And he was able to show the jagged scars in his body, the imprints of his suffering for Christ, according to Galatians 6 and verse 17. And so he suffered hunger and thirst and loneliness and sickness and imprisonment and multiple beatings and more than one shipwreck. And you can read the entire list of those things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But he never once complained that his life had been unduly difficult. Paul was not a complainer. In fact, what he did do was thank God that he was numbered with those who were privileged and honored to suffer for Christ. He found reason to rejoice in those afflictions. For a quick example is the opening chapter of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12. He said, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, you know it's one of the prison epistles. And you know where Paul was when he wrote those words. So what has happened to me has really fallen out to advance the gospel. And let me suggest that if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that's all he ever really wanted, is to see the gospel advance. And he said, if that means spending time behind bars, I'm more than happy to do that. In fact, if you look at the fuller context of Romans 8.28, do you have any idea of some of the grim things that had happened to Paul surrounding the days of the writing of this text. Let me fill in the blanks for you. It's not going to take long, but, but he had been mobbed by fanatics in Jerusalem. You know, there's some celebrities that go into a city and, and they can't get out of the airport before they're mobbed by paparazzi. That wasn't Paul's problem. He was mobbed by fanatics who did not have his best interest in mind. There had been a plot to assassinate him. There was a price on his head. There was a contract on his life. Paul was very much aware of that. And he'd been imprisoned unjustly. He had been tried before the brutal Emperor Nero. And when I read those kinds of things about what was taking place when Paul wrote these words in our text, I'll have to be honest with you. I can't find a, a thing on that list that looks even close to good. And yet Paul says, while not all of them are inherently good, they can all work good in my life and in yours. And as the old gospel song says, ain't that good news? To know that God can control and manipulate the affairs of our life so that it can bring good even out of tragedy. You see, Paul was not a freshman in the school of life. He knew every kind of sorrow. His enemies had back, opened his back a hundred and two times. He was a man intimately acquainted with, with bonds and beatings. His home was a prison. 
And yet how very much, 2,000 years later, we respect the Apostle Paul, don't we? I've been in Bible classes where people was asked, who, who other than Jesus himself do you respect the most from the pages of the New Testament? Almost always the Apostle Paul comes in first place. And so, even though Paul was tried by Nero, even though he was beaten and imprisoned by the best of them, 2,000 years later, we still name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. We respect Paul for his faith. And it was Paul who wrote, all things work together for good to them who love God. You see, it isn't difficult to say that all things minus the hard things work together for good. But to say that all things, including the hard things, work together for good shows strong faith. Otto Foster was prospering in 1929. Some of you know exactly what that date means. As one brother stood before an audience, he said, there are some in this audience who look like that you lived through the Great Depression. Others of you look like you may have caused it. But Otto Foster really lived through the Great Depression. But in 1929, things were looking very good for him. His mercantile business had expanded to include 10 stores. He had $40,000 in accounts receivable in his main store. And in those days, that was an absolute fortune. Otto could have retired on that if he had decided to do so. And he was a member of a prominent civic club, and he didn't even own a razor. That's because he went down to the barber shop every morning and had somebody else shave him. And so he paid for that service. He and his wife had everything that they had ever dreamed of. And then came the financial disaster of 1929, and they lost absolutely everything. It seemed the worst thing that could have occurred had occurred in Otto and his wife's life. And, but Otto Foster says it was the best thing that ever happened to him. What? Did I hear you say it was the best thing that ever happened to you? He said because it jolted him out of his selfishness and helped him to really appreciate for the first time in his life his total dependence on God. He prospered since then, but without the shackles of selfishness. You see, Otto believed this verse because he's seen it proven true in the crucible of life. David said something very similar to that. In fact, more than once in Psalm 119, that great tribute to the word of God. In verse 67 of Psalm 119, he says before, and you have to really reread this to make sure that you're understanding exactly what he's communicating. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. What are you saying, David? I learned something through my suffering. Before my affliction, I had little regard. Now I have great regard for your word. I learned something. And then a few verses later in verse 71 of Psalm 119, it was good, David says, for me to have been afflicted that I may learn your decrees. Someone has said it this way. Most people look up only when they're flat on their back. David said, I know what that's like. Because it was through my afflictions that I learned that God, that God works all things for good to them who love the Lord. And finally, there's two other words I want us to notice, and then we're through. And those are the words, work together. Now, the word together is one of the most important words, I think, in this great promise. Paul doesn't say, as we've already noted, that everything in life is good, even for those who love the Lord. That is not what he is asserting. He says all things work together for good 
to them that love him. And that, and that point is absolutely significant. Let me illustrate it this way. I don't like buttermilk. I hold in high suspicion anyone who does. And that includes my respected father. My father would sit on the other side of the dinner table and drink cold buttermilk like I would drink Kool-Aid. And I still don't understand it. How do you know when buttermilk has gone bad? That's the question, the cosmic question that I would, I would pose to my father. So I've gone on record as saying I don't like buttermilk. Flour alone is unpalatable. Anytime you get a hankering for bread, you don't go to the flour canister and just spoon some out. That's terrible. That's like eating dust. I don't like baking soda by itself nor shortening. But all of those ingredients working together combine to make a wonderful food, and that's good old-fashioned cathead biscuits. You see, by themselves, those ingredients are unpalatable. But working together, they make something that's very enjoyable, in fact, even good for us. Military strategists certainly understand this point. The isolated events of a military campaign can never be judged standing alone. They have to be seen in relation to the overall strategy and, and the final victory. That is, as we've sometimes said, you can lose a lot of battles and still win the war. Because all of it has to be taken in an overarching sort of perspective. And, and that, I think, is exactly the point that Paul is making in our text. Everything Paul says has to be related to the end. We even have a saying for it, all's well that ends well. And that's true when it has a spiritual dimension to it. Full comprehension of this promise must embrace not only this life, but the life to come. If we were sure that life ended at the grave, then this verse would be absolutely meaningless to us. It would not have any great impact to us. It would be of no interest to us at all. These words would seem absurd. They would seem meaningless. But I'm telling you this morning something you already know. Life does not end at the grave. There's, there's more. There's far, far more. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 said, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. What a wonderful thought that is. And what a wonderful promise. So while we live on this earth, we have to accept this promise by faith. But, but I really believe that after this life, the truthfulness of this statement will become crystal clear. You know, I've often thought when I get to heaven, the first uh, question that I'm going to ask Jesus is, and I've thought about some question or some issue that has baffled and puzzled me in this life. But you know, when we get to heaven... We're not going to have to ask any questions because faith will then be sight. If you want the Bible for that, I believe it can be found in the New Testament. One day Jesus was talking to his perplexed disciples about some of their problems and knowing they couldn't grasp the total picture. This is John 16, 23, if you want to look at it later. He pointed to the future and here's what Jesus said to those disciples. He said, in that day, you will ask me no questions. Faith will become sight. And the same is true with us. There are a lot of questions that torture us now. But when we step to the other side, the Lord says all at once, we'll see how all the pieces fit together. Behind our life, the weaver stands and works his wondrous will. We leave it in his all-wise hands and trust his perfect skill. Should mystery enshroud his plan and our foresight grow dim, 
will not try to hold each seam, but leave each thread to him. The threads our hands in blindness spin, no self-determined plan weaves in. The shuttle of the unseen power works out a pattern that's his, not ours. You see, even the dark threads, very useful in the pattern which he planned, as are the threads of gold and silver in that pattern that he planned. But not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unfold the pattern or explain the reason why. It's good to know that someday all of our questions will be answered by the great weaver. So the question that we've been asking ourselves this morning is simply this. Can you accept life's happenings by faith? When you encounter an unpleasant situation that can't be changed, are you to the point in your spiritual maturity that you can accept it? Does your faith have enough muscle to accept God's ability to take that distasteful occurrence and fit it into a plan for your ultimate good? So I guess what I'm asking is this. Do you really believe that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose? I have to say that in our world and in our nation, considering the political and the moral environment that we're experiencing right now, I have never heard quite so much doom and gloom talk. And I understand that. I live in the real world. My feet are on this planet just like yours. So I understand the talk. I understand the lament. And I understand the concern. But by the same token, I understand this. God is still in heaven. He's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He still loves his people. This promise is still true. That if, you, if you're willing to love him and accept his love in return, that he will work all things together for your good. You see, that dynamic has an important spiritual dimension to it. In John 15, verse 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this morning, there may be some in this audience who need to obey the Lord in the initial act of becoming a child of God. And we encourage you to turn your back on sin and repentance, confess Jesus' sweet name as the Son of God, and allow us to baptize you into Christ so that this promise can be yours. While we stand, while we sing.